Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamara. Okay, this week we are talking to one of the most legendary engineers in rock history, Shelly Yakis. Now, Shelly's career goes back like 50 years. Imagine this. Shelly engineered John Lennon's Imagine. Shelly worked on classic albums like Van Morrison's Moondance and Lou Reed's Berlin and uh, the band's Music from Big Pink. His One of his most successful collaborations was with Tom Petty. That's why you're hearing Refugee. He engineered the Damn the, the Torpedoes album and a bunch of other Tom Petty stuff. We talk about a lot of that stuff. He was really ensconced in that sound in L.A. at the time. So, of course, there's Don Henley and there's Stevie Nicks. But there's also U2, Eurythmics, Bob Seger, Meatloaf, The Cutting Crew. Uh, there's all kinds of people in here. And... Uh, it, you guys know we love these conversations because we just go right down the line listening to all these fun stories off of his resume. The first few minutes, uh, 10 or 15 minutes, are spent kind of laying some track. We get to know Shelly. We get to know his philosophy on engineering, why his ears are so legendary, uh, why he never really went into production. He could have and he didn't. But anyway, this guy's a legend. He's been around forever and has done so many amazing things. By the way, I would give him a follow or send him a friend request or something on Facebook because he's very active on there. With some, uh, Since the quarantine has come down, there's been a lot of sort of like ask me anythings, some Facebook live, some you know sharing tips of the trade. It's worth looking into. The guy has seen and done almost all of it. Okay? Anyway, Shelly's a legend. We're lucky to hear from him. He called me from his home in New York. Now, I want to kick it off. You're, you know, famously known for having some of the best ears in the business, and you've been at this for a really long time. When I was researching to talk to you, I found an article where you were talking about, because your dad and your uncle were in the music business, and your dad taught yep. you a lesson, from what I understand, about the difference between hearing but not listening. And I wondered, it sounded like that was a profound thing for you that sort of paved the way for the rest of your career. Could you recount that story for us? Yeah, well, basically it was that he always felt that everyone hears but not everyone listens in the way you need to in, in order to put out a good product. When I was a kid, a teenager, I used to work at my dad's studio in Boston. He had a studio called Ace Recording. And I worked there and was a gopher, go for this, go for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to make tape copies. Part of his business, uh, he and his brother's business, was to do commercials for some of the big agencies in Boston. And uh, along with all sorts of other things like uh, live recording, they were a well-rounded place. And, and it was really a service business to, to people in, in the the Boston, Massachusetts, you know, area, and, mm -hmm. and he was a busy place. And so anyway, so I'm making these tape copies. I have to make 50 tape copies for a big agency for a commercial that they had done in my dad's place where they had recorded it and mixed it and all that stuff. And so I, I bring down a cardboard box filled with 50 copies, and my dad always spot-checked them. And he had this wallen sack tape machine and that thing was quarter track so on the tape it would only play the edges of the tape so mm -hmm. if there was any crinkle or anything wrong with the with the reel to reel that we made and these are for radio stations to play this mm -hmm. commercial mm -hmm. 
they get delivered like on a Friday and it won't play for a Monday morning, it's pretty tough to fix that, you know, in mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So everything always had to sound good and be correct and there was no room for error. So my dad picks a couple of tapes out of the box and he plays them randomly. And then he says to me, did you hear that? Mm. And I said, hear what? And he said, well, it's called the dropout. It's when the music just drops in volume just for a moment because there's a defect in the tape. And it didn't record that moment on the tape. It can be a very subtle thing, but on the radio, it can become a bigger thing. It can be a blip, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I said, I, I said, no, I didn't hear it. And he said, here, I'll play it for you again. And I played it, and I didn't hear it. Mm. And he kept doing this for about 11, 12 times. <laughs> and maybe on the 12th time, I heard it. And I looked at him and said, Dad, was that there all the time you played those 11 times before this? Mm -hmm. And he said, every time. It was on the first play. <laughs> every time. Wild. And I said, holy cow. Yeah. When I realized what I wasn't hearing, yeah. I realized, you know, everyone hears, but not everybody listens. And, and so that, that was pretty much it. And it changed from that moment on. It changed my focus just naturally. I naturally listened to everything differently from that mm -hmm. moment on that's and that's so really where i learned to hear you know yeah it may have been in the same interview or another one i think uh you were asked what does it take to be a good engineer and you said patience and ears and ears is obviously you've just established for us why ears are so important but tell us about the patience side of that why well this record making thing is not an exact science it's mm. all left to opinion mm -hmm. and I, I, the best example I could give you is if you brought your car in because it needed brakes to a mechanic and uh, let's say you, you're driving a Toyota and you bring it into a Toyota mechanic he opens a book up that says 40 steps to a perfect factory brake job it's his manual he starts at step one no matter what's wrong with your brakes he starts at step one and he ends at step 40, and, and when he's finished with step 40, you have a brake job like how it came out of the factory. Mm. Well, in, in our business, there's no such book. There are books about, you know, how to record and all that sort of stuff, but there's no manuals because our business is left to interpretation. The brakes are not left to interpretation. Mm -hmm. People would be skidding all over the street if that was <laughs> the way it was. But our business is left to interpretation, and you could play somebody a mix, you can play, how about this? You can play 90 people a mix and you'll get 150 different opinions. Ah, so true. And it really is true. And I'm not saying any of them are wrong or right. I'm just yeah. saying people hear so differently that it's remarkable. It would, it, it would blow your mind. And so picture me or any engineer that does what I do, any mixer, recording engineer in the room mm -hmm. with not only the producer, but the head of the, the writer of the music, the leader of the band, mm -hmm. the band calls from the record label and everybody's got a different opinion of, of how you should go forward. Yeah. As a recording engineer, my job is to get what's in the producer's head and the band's head, the, the head of the band, what's in their head to come out of the speaker. Right. That's my job. Yeah. And it takes a lot of patience I bet. to do this and having the right attitude and a lot of patience 
to be able to get the best out of the band because that's what they came to me for. And, yeah. and that's why the producer came to me. Yeah. And I'm just trying to capture what's in that studio, you know? Yeah. I've noticed that you're almost always listed as engineer or mixer, but not always producer. And I've had this conversation with almost every pro uh, producer I've had on here. What is the difference? I mean, I'm guessing when in your case, there's a producer like, we'll, I, I'll say Todd Rundgren or something like that. He's kind of the in charge of it all, but you're right there twiddling the knobs, working the things so that it sounds right. Do I have, I mean, is that a very broad way of describing how you would, how you would go about yes. describing your role? Yes. And if you add to that, that, uh, as I said before, my job is knowing my job. My yeah. job is also knowing, knowing my place. I'm not the producer in that room. I'm not the artist. I'm not the songwriter. I'm the recording engineer and the mixer. And my job is to basically get what's in their head to come out of the speaker, yeah. to be able to give them something exciting in the headsets, to be able to privately, quietly, secretly comment to the producer so that it's just he and I talking. If I have an opinion, I, I never want to come off as if I want to be a producer or take his job. So. I'm always very careful and respectful to say, do you mind if I make a comment to you and mm -hmm. I don't do it in front of the band? And, mm -hmm. you know, I might say, look, I think there's one more take in this band. Or I think that there was a section that was messed up. And even though you're thinking this is the take, I think the section is messed up and we might want to go back and check it out. And I end up to be a lot of times a big help uh, yeah. produces secret weapon right. and any guy that does what I do for a living that's decent at it. You become the producer's secret weapon because it's another set of ears mm -hmm. and the producers literally have their hands full. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm shielded from a lot of the BS by the producer. I'm between the producers between me yeah. and the record label and the management. And so imagine being a producer, you have to be able to manage every entity you have to be able to manage the leader of the band the band you have to be able to manage the band's girlfriend yeah one of the members <laughs> of the band's girlfriends and wives and you mm -hmm. have to manage the record label and the a and r guy and the studio and the engineer you know the producer does a lot of that stuff and i'm left with being able to concentrate on what i'm doing so that yeah. i can just as helpful as i can be to make the best record we can make together you know yeah. and yeah, and so really, that that's really the direction of how it seems to go in the sessions I work okay. on. And most most guys that do what I do, when you're doing record company level work, it's how it has to go, or or it's not going to go well. Right. Were you ever tempted to become a producer? Did you ever? Was that ever an aspiration for you? No. No. You're happy to do what you no. did. Obviously, you're like yes, the best I in the business I, at it. I felt I was a better mixer. Okay. Then I was a producer, and I and I was right. Yeah. But I'm a very good co-producer, and that's mm. that's different. That's splitting the responsibility. I'm a very good co-producer, and and I'm able to engineer and mix and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But as far as doing the whole thing, I I would be careful what projects I chose. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. You know, there's a lot of pressure on guys that do what I do to be producers because. It, it, it just seems to be the cool thing. But, you know, for me, what turned out to be the cool thing is what I did best, which was mix, record and mix. 
yeah. and be able to work with clients that no one else was able to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because clients were viewed as too difficult or they weren't for me. <laughs> right. They weren't for me at all. We That's had a lot great. of fun. Another thing I read was Eddie Kramer asking you to help him, quote unquote, use the room. And I wondered, is this, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but as part of your responsibility, miking everyone as well? And uh, when he yeah. says use the room, is he wanting to know how you get a particular sound in the control booth with the mics and where they're placed? Yes. In other words, what he's talking about is using more of the room mics and less of the close mics, at least in the balance, mm. so that he could hear what the room mics was sounding like and decide how much he wanted to use. You know? mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I wanted to establish, you know, kind of the ground rules that we're working off of here. When we talk about the music we're going to get into here, I wanted to set the stage for where, you know, where your place in these songs and in this music lies. We're going to probably jump around, but we may as well start right from the beginning because a couple of the big things that come out from the early days of your career are the band's Music for Big Pink and Van Morrison's Moondance. Now, I should admit, ugh, I'm not that big of a fan of the band. I'll be honest. So, but I do love Van Morrison, especially that album. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes A fantabulous night to make romance Need the cover of October skies you know the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow You know I'm trying to please to the calling Of your heartstrings that play soft and low You know the night's magic Seem to whisper and hush You know the soft moonlight Seems to shine in your blush My love, can I just make some more romance with you? My love, well, I want to make love to you tonight. I can't wait till the morning has come. Were you a gopher at this time? Were you a T-boy? Kind of, you know, or was it literally, you know, getting in there, getting your hands dirty and working on the music itself? I was a pretty new engineer. I was actually recording and mixing by then, and I was pretty new at it. Even though I had worked for the studio as an assistant, I was an assistant for about a year, maybe a year and a half, an intense year and a half. And mm. and then I got the opportunity to, to do Van, the Van Morrison album. And a lot of those opportunities in that day were different than how they come now. In other words, in the day, there were like seven engineers employed by the studio I worked mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. by a &R Recording. And the girls in the office, it was so busy. They had so many rooms around town, and it was so such a busy place. They actually had two girls on the book that would work simultaneously and take phone calls and, and bookings. And so if a lot of times a, a producer would call and say, hey, I want to book some time. I don't have an engineer. Is there somebody you could recommend from your staff? And the girl would say, 
well, what kind of music is it? And and she would recommend one of the guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you make her look bad, you're not getting any more work. Mm -hmm. So one of the girls there, Carol Peters, would recommend me for work, and she recommended me for this album, and this Van Morrison album, and I said, well, what's the instrumentation? And she gave me the instrumentation, and then it was with horns, plus horns. Mm. And I said, Carol, I never recorded horns before. And she said, I heard that you can figure it out. I know I know you'll do a really good job. <laughs> I know you do a really good job on this. Nice. And so she booked me on it. And these girls could make or break your entire career. If they felt you weren't good at what you did or you couldn't satisfy the person uh, that, you know, that they were doing the recommendation for, mm-hmm. you weren't going to get any more work. And I was very fortunate, so it, it, mm-hmm. it worked out. Good. What was it like working with Van Morrison? Because he, as you know, is one of the most kind of notorious personalities in rock history. A, an immense talent, but apparently really prickly and grumpy, too. So what was it like working with him? Well, it was amazing because when you hear that music yeah. uh, come out of the speakers and he's doing a live vocal on, on a lot of this stuff, it's remarkable. So you don't notice that he's not talking to you. <laughs> he's just doing. I think in the, the whole album he said three words to me. <laughs> Put more bottom on my voice. That was it. Was that four words? I don't know. You can count the words. Oh, that's great. But uh, yeah, so that, that was it. But, you know, he speaks through his music and it's remarkable. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but if you listen to Moondance, the first five or first maybe six songs, he sings each song as if he's a different personality. Ooh. And he fits his personality and his performance to the to the song, to the lyrics, to yeah. the idea of the song. And when you listen to it with that in mind, you go, holy cow, he really does. He's like an actor, but still yeah. staying in character. He's just changing the, his personality to fit the song, but yet he sounds like him. I, I don't know how to explain it, but you'd have to listen yeah. to yourself. I love that album, and I'm going to listen to it again with different ears to kind of kind of be able to pick that out. That's fascinating. Okay, now we have to talk about John Lennon's Imagine. Okay. 
that's one of the greatest songs of all time. It's unfortunately for me one of those songs that it's almost so overplayed. I feel like sometimes it's lost some of its meaning and its magic. But were you in the room? Is it recorded in one take of him on the piano? Tell us everything you can about Imagine. All right. Imagine Roy Sakala was the main engineer. I was an engineer. Jack Douglas was an engineer and an assistant at the time. And we worked together at the same studio and we worked in a couple of different rooms on this song and this album. The song was recorded in England. Okay. And it was brought to us by John and Phil Spector. And they want to put on a string section right on the mix, hmm. right on the magic. And we recorded these strings live right onto the mix and mm. copied to another tape machine. Uh, I think it was an eight track at the time or maybe 16 track. And we recorded the strings. And now I'm standing in the room with Phil Spector and John Lennon. Goodness. And I'm at attention, hoping that the tape machine doesn't stop working. Mm. I'm hoping that the electricity doesn't go off for a minute and, you know, snap the tape. Mm -hmm. I'm hope I'm imagining all these things that could go wrong with these two amazing record makers in this yeah. room, yeah. and Roy Sakala, who's a really experienced guy. And uh, we were at Record Plant in New York, and so so after the session, Roy and I would, with John's participation and and permission, when the sessions were done and Phil left. We would work on Imagine in another room and did we would do other things to it, mm. add some stuff to it, double some stuff, just to make it stronger. And it was sort of something that no one knows about, no one talked about, but we would do it with John and without John. He always approved the final thing. And so I, I always felt like I had a lot to do with the recording, even though I yeah. didn't actually record it. Then we had to mix it. Yeah. So, you know, I worked with Roy on the mix and he and I worked on it. And, you know, I was really fortunate to be part of that song, yeah. you know. Wow. We had to take all these elements, in the end, we had to take all these elements and add them back in. The, and, and so it was really uh, a remarkable thing, you know. Yeah. When you hear a song that you worked on, and there's millions of them at this point you're you know you're somewhere you're in the car and one of your songs because i'm on the comes on the radio does it immediately transport you back to the room that you were just talking about and sitting there looking at phil and john and or can you are you do you are you separate from these experiences or are you still right in the middle of them i'm still right in the middle what it brings me back to is when we got the final mix that feel never changes mm. i don't care if it's a hundred years Mm -hmm. that feel that you hear on the radio because we lock it in and the sound and the feel and all that stuff that we spend so much time making sure we capture is locked in and anywhere in the world any, any year of the mm -hmm. century mm -hmm. it's going to always have that vibe yeah. that I heard the day we finished it yeah. and that's what it brings me back to then I, then I start thinking about gee we had this issue when we were making it. Gee, we had this thing go well for us when we were making it. I start thinking about some of the making of it, you know. Yeah. But it takes me back there, and, and that's why I think some of these pieces of music were so successful, because not only were the people who wrote the songs terrific writers, but they were great performers. The producers involved were great producers. And we were all together able to capture this, this yeah. unique thing that 
it stays on people's turntables for years or stays in their yeah. CD player on their in their downloads or wherever it might be right. for their vinyl or whatever that it plays every week, you know? Yeah. And uh, there's some special attraction to it that we were able to get across to the listener. Yeah. I would imagine, I don't know, but I'm guessing your paths crossed with Phil Spector more than once over the years. What are your thoughts on where he ended up, eventually, you know, ultimately? Well, when you say ended up, which end? Uh, yeah, well, prison, basically. I mean, where, did you... It's a shame because he was revolutionary with his vision and his ears for where music could go at that time. But I've, I wonder if you saw glimpses of the, you know, the guy that he became. I didn't see anything in person, but I heard from other <clears throat> engineers that worked on his records that he shot a gun off in the control room. Mm. And I always thought he was a wild card, but I never thought he'd end up where he did. It's, yeah. it's a shame because he's so talented and he's yeah. so great at getting a performance out of, a, of an artist and a band and, and the concept of his sound that he came up with. I mean, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I would, have never, I would have never thought, even from the crazy stories mm -hmm. I heard about him, you know, in person, I didn't see any of that stuff. It, yeah. didn't, it wasn't around. He was an unusual guy, and that's yeah. okay. You yeah, know, it's what sure. it takes. You know, he's, he saw it differently, and that's yeah. what it takes to, to make special stuff. Yeah. Okay. I just wondered what your thoughts were. I wanted to ask you about somebody who we recently lost, actually, and that's Buzzy Linhart. I worked with Buzzy <clears throat> in, in probably 1970 roughly mm -hmm. uh, at record plant I, I i was there when we recorded friends there is no one here beside me and my problems have all gone there is no one no one to deride me. But you got to have friends. The feelings are oh so strong. You got to have friends. To make that thing last long. I had some friends, but they're gone. I did the whole thing for Friends and how much I did on his album at the time. And uh, it's a shame about Buzzy, you know, because yeah. I, always, I always thought he was great. He was so much fun, and, mm -hmm. and his music always expressed that, you know? Yeah. yeah, I discovered him a few years ago, and I just think he was so interesting and fascinating. And, I mean, he sort of disappeared. And then you find there's this really interesting documentary actually made about him that I think is available on Vimeo or online somewhere. And you realize that he just got overrun with health problems. And it just kind of yeah. clouded the last, like, 30 years of his life. And unfortunately, he just passed away recently. Yeah. No, I, wondered, I wondered what the story was there. Okay. Um, I don't know. Okay. But you liked working with him. He was, he seemed, he was as nice a guy as he seemed. 
Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about Lou Reed's Berlin album. I don't know what exactly you did on that, but he's another kind of like Van Morrison, a visionary with a prickly personality. What was it like working with Lou? Well, he's amazing. He wasn't, as I remember, he wasn't there too much. Bob Eswin was who mm. I worked with on it. Okay. And uh, we did some mixing and it was uh, the stuff I did. It, it was uneventful other than the stuff was really unique. And yeah. Bob's a terrific producer and, and a unique producer and, I really like working with him, you know. Okay, okay, yeah. Bob's a personality. I mean, he's he's kind of his own industry, you know. A Bob Ezrin, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, any album produced by Bob Ezrin is suddenly more interesting than it would have been otherwise, you know. That's right. It's always an event. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think that is. I, he came from a theatrical background, meaning I I believe that he worked with. Uh, a producer, I got to remember the guys, Richardson, and and they did stuff that was, I, I'll just say a lot of theatrical stuff. Yeah. You know, maybe I can look it up and clarify it a little more so I don't get it wrong. But you know, George Martin was a, a mm -hmm. comedy producer, and so you know, maybe one of the first music things he did with the Beatles. It might have been the first, but because he had that sensibility, he was able to get unique stuff out of that out of what was in the group's head, he was able to get it out of their heads and in a performance and yeah. and on on to tape. And so Bob is very much like that in terms of everything is from a more theatrical point of view, you know? Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how he thinks, but I can tell you the end result is you can hear it yourself. It's always yeah. like an event. It's like an event. It's like it comes with a video and there's no video. You know? That's right. <laughs> It's cinematic. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, That's cinematic. It. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was thinking, you mentioned Ezrin, and I thought, I wonder if there are, like, what producers specifically took you under their wing? And I realized one of them has to be Jimmy Iovine, and that's probably where I uh, I was watching the Classic Albums episode of for Damn the Torpedoes, I don't know, a few six months ago or whatever, and you were on there, and I thought, now that's a guy I want to talk to because it suddenly I'm remembering all this stuff that you've worked on. Is there other than Jimmy? Are there other people that have sort of said Shelley's my guy, and you kind of hitched your wagon to them as producers? 
Well, it's a little different than that, but yes, we ended up working together. There, were, there was uh, Bob Esmond, and there was Jimmy Iovine, and Jimmy Einer, mm -hmm. and a number of other people. John Lennon, you know? Yeah, of course. He, he produced his own stuff. Okay. And a lot of independent producers. Peter Siegel, ah. who, who really did some really cool records. We did some cool stuff together. Mm -hmm. Career, who produces uh, his own stuff, basically. Okay. Yeah, so I, I've worked with a lot of really, really good producers. Yeah. Sometimes the record label left it to the group and myself to, to mix something, and there was no producer there. But it really, the group is, I rely on the group to show me how they see their direction. Hmm. You don't want to make it, the, I don't want to make it an engineer's record, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So together we come up with their direction with some of my personality and, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about Damn the Torpedoes since that's, I don't know, of, of all the things you've worked on, what's the one that is like top on the list? You know, And it, what do other people come to you wanting to talk about the most? Oh, sorry. Before I answer that, there's another producer, Danny Kortzmore. Oh, of course. Danny Kortzmore, Danny yeah. who co-produced uh, Henley's End of the Innocence with Henley, and I engineered that with them. So, uh, nice. You, know, you might want to add that to the other I will. So, I'm sorry, what was the, what was the new question? Um, I was asking, what of all the things you've worked on do people come to you wanting to talk about the most? A couple of things. They usually have questions about John Lennon stuff, the raspberries go all the way. Yeah. Uh, Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes album, the drum sound, the, the overall sound, the, the come on of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, it's really, uh, I mean, you can't leave, how can you leave Belladonna out you know, oh, that album? I we're mean, coming, we're coming to that know, too. People, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I get, I get questions across the board, you know, but a lot, a lot about the Petty drum sound and and the overall sound of that album. And, you know, imagine, I mean, it's really yeah. endless. It's nice. I, I really like it, you know. Good, good, I bet. So tell me then about uh, Damn, Damn the Torpedoes. My understanding, if I remember correctly from watching that show, was that it was sort of a make-or-break situation for Tom and that Jimmy Iovine was just trying forever to make this sound exactly like he wanted it to, like you were saying earlier, exactly how they have it in their head. And they eventually called on you and you kind of swooped in and saved the day and made the album what it is today. <laughs> well, that's really, that's really nice, but it's not quite right. Okay. Uh, okay. I don't think it was a make it or break it for Tom because he had had two albums out before we did Damn the Torpedoes. True. And I, Damn the Torpedoes is the third album. The second album that he did, did well. Okay. Certainly not as good as Damn the Torpedoes, but it did well. And it appeared that Tom was about to break wide open. Mm -hmm. And so, luckily, we were asked to do that album. But I remember that uh, Jimmy played me this. He says, I want to play you something. Tell me what you think of this. And he plays me Tom Petty. And I'm hearing Tom for the first time now. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think the guy sings amazing and he sounds unique. He said, uh, how'd you feel about going to California and working with this guy? Mm. And I said, I'd love it. I, I, I love the sound, you know. It's, so I didn't know this at the time, but when we went to California, they didn't know he was bringing me. They, oh. thought, he did, they thought he did the engineering and the producing. Mm. So for a while, uh, he and I are recording with them, 
And I don't know that they're talking about, well, who's this guy sitting with Jimmy? And nobody's mm-hmm. saying anything. And in, in time, they really started to uh, feel comfortable with me, and they really liked the way the stuff sounded. And then Jimmy said to me, you know, I didn't want to tell you. They didn't know you were coming because I didn't want you to be uncomfortable. I knew they'd like you for who you are mm-hmm. and not being uptight about wondering are they going to like me or not. And he said they expected me to be producer and engineer, he said, but I knew we could make a better record if we did this together. Mm, and, so, and so that's how it came together. And okay. so with Jimmy's, Jimmy being the producer and a really creative guy and, and uh, he and Tom uh, allowing me the time to get those sounds and yeah. working together with, with he, he and Tom and, and Mike Campbell and the rest of the band. Uh, we were able to put it together and come up with something that uh, endured, didn't it? Yeah, it sure did. And you stuck with it. I mean, you were on like the next four albums or something that he that those guys did. You mentioned the drum yeah. sound. I'm not an audio engineer, but tell me what what was it that made that special? What was it that what was the thing that people were that Jimmy and Tom and everyone else was trying to capture that you managed to help them capture? What was it? Well, it started out with Stan, uh, Stan Lynch, the Petty's drummer, bringing a set of drums in. So I describe him as this tall, big, strapping guy mm-hmm. and a powerful drummer. So I said, Stan, you sound like you're playing a set of pink drums. Mm-hmm. They're not making, I don't hear it. And this was, they gave us a day before the session to get drum sounds and sort stuff out. So we're trying, he and I are trying to work it out. And I said, you know anybody who'd loan us some drums that we could we could borrow borrow and mix and match? And he said, you know, I know this store that I have a relationship with in the Valley, uh, this is in Los Angeles, that would loan us some stuff and we could mix and match it and, and, and or get a complete set and we would, you know, rent it from them or whatever. It's a mm-hmm. music store in the Valley. So we went there the next morning and we picked out a bunch of stuff and, bunch of different types of heads and sticks and and Stan was great you know he just wanted to make it the best he could be, it yeah. could be and and we worked together to match uh, to match heads with drums that made the best sound and drums with drums that hmm. all worked together and we 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 kind of got a mishmash of stuff that each on its own sounded good and then together they sounded really strong mm. and he was comfortable playing everything we put together and it made this sound that then I had to figure out how to capture and so I figured it out and it became that drum sound wow amazing that's amazing okay I'm I'm curious over the course of those four Tom Petty albums do you have a favorite moment is there you know a a particular song or even a a moment in a song where you think I remember working on that and we nailed it and I was so happy with how it turned out or something like that you know well, there were two things. One, don't come around here no more. I did the burp at the end on the. You did? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> he nice. needed a burp. I said, I think I might be able to do it. So that's me. So that's that was good. But uh, don't do me like that. We we finished the album. We finished. It's an interesting story. So 
we finished the out al- recording the album and we were about to start mixing it within a couple of days and i i flew my girlfriend out for the weekend before so we could spend some time together because i wasn't going to see her for a month mm-hmm. and uh i said i said lonnie let me play the songs that i think are the singles off the album and i played her like singles mm-hmm. what i thought were singles and she said let me hear the rest of the album and i played her the whole album and she said she said none of those songs you played me were first single he said she said this song don't do me like that is mm-hmm. is your single and i said you're crazy <laughs> that's just this, that's just the the last song on the album basically uh-huh. she, uh, she said to me she was a great background singer sang for many different big artists and she said she had this knack for picking singles and she she said have i ever been wrong about a single mm. and i said no and then i suddenly heard through her ears what she was hearing yeah yeah and, and then i realized why no one else was picking this as a single because the first single on an album is really important yes and um, it drives that whole album yeah and can determine the future of the album. And uh, I remember saying, I got it. Yeah. I got it. You're right. You're yeah. right about it. So the next day, Monday morning, I go to the studio and I meet Tom and Jimmy there. And and we're going to start mixing the album. And I say, you know, Don't Do Me Like That is your first single. Mm. And they said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so... <laughs> Yeah, and so I, I I figured out why it didn't sound like a single to anybody, and I made those things sound more sound like more mm. single like. Mm-hmm. And it's unusual. It's unusual because normally a song that's a single, in almost any form, sounds like a single. Yeah. No matter how the how it sounds, no matter what it is about it, it will sound like a single. It may not sound tonally correct till you mm-hmm. mix it, mm-hmm. but they don't usually use lose that single feel unless you got a bad mix on it. Mm. And so this song didn't sound like a single at all until I made the sound sound much more aggressive and much more, which was appropriate for the song because it was really recorded as a polite thing. Sure. And once once I made it sound more rock and roll, and the the parts of the song seemed to show themselves more because of that, rather than running together in a light thing mm. you know light presentation yeah once the parts one of the once the all the parts started to work together more clearly it became obvious that this thing was a single yeah and so you know it became the first single it became a really big hit and and mm. so that's one of my memories of that that's of great that that's my favorite song on that album too so i'm glad you picked that oh. one because that's the one that matters to okay. me the most too yeah yeah Okay, fantastic. So I'm guessing your partnership with Jimmy Iovine is what led to working with Stevie Nicks as well. I mean, he's hot right then. And Stevie is a natural, you know, next chapter in the career to uh, start working on. You guys do Belladonna and Rock a Little and there's I Can't Wait, Stand Back and all these great songs on those albums.
if I remember correctly, I think those two may have even been an item or having an affair or something like that around that time. What was that like? Was it was it enjoyable? Was it fraught with some drama? Was it, you know, lovers quarrel? What was it romantic? What was it like being <laughs> in the middle of all of that? You know, uh, well, it was very interesting. Jimmy and, and Stevie really liked each other. On, uh, uh, besides being on a professional level, they really figured out they liked each other. And Jimmy and I, uh, were, the record label were, was renting a house for Jimmy and I in Sherman Oaks to, to stay at while we were making the album. And I know that Jimmy had some thoughts about, gee, I might, I'm going to get, I might get involved with my artist on a different level than mm-hmm. just music, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Should I or shouldn't I? And, you know, we, we talked about it. He made his decision. And, and they were together for a while. And I didn't see any drama. Mm-hmm. I think it was all really cool. And Stevie just wanted to write. And Jimmy wanted to produce. And and it all came together. And any mm-hmm. drama that, if there was any drama going on, it wasn't in front of me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Didn't I, I think I saw or read something once that, Tom Petty was kind of jealous of this. They had to keep not just their personal relationship, but I think even their working relationship kind of a secret from Tom because of jealousy. I don't I don't know. Does any of this ring a bell to you? No, none. Oh, I thought I'd heard that somewhere. In an, another interview I did, I was asked, was Tom and Stevie romantically involved? Mm-hmm. And I never saw I never saw that during the time I worked with them, which was a number of years. So it, it, you know, there's all these conspiracy mm-hmm. theories, you know, mm-hmm. but it was straight ahead. I, I know. Well, let me put it this way: to answer your question about Tom's feelings about Stevie, I never saw anything you just you described. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. I think I saw that in a documentary once or something like that, and I wondered if you had insight on it. You mentioned your girlfriend Lonnie. You're in the music industry at like the height of the height of it all. Are you, yeah. uh, you know, did you have any famous girlfriends we would know or, you know, dates nope. or nothing like that? No, I could have, but it doesn't work when you go out with your client. It doesn't work on a social level. I believe it. I, I don't think. Yeah. I think you have to have, be able to have the relationship where the artist can say, I'm not happy with that. Yeah. I'm still comfortable about saying, I, I'd really like to hear that differently. Yeah. Without anything else any baggage being overlaid on it you know yeah i was always careful to not do that and there were some disappointments there was some there was some potential relationships that i i know could have been great but at the same time it, it i felt it would have affected the final outcome of the album or the music or whatever it was i i would look to the outside if i saw somebody i liked it would always be outside the studio okay know? Probably for the best. Smart. Okay. We should talk about, it even says so on your website, that you mixed the cowbell part of Blue Oyster Colts Don't Fear the Reaper. Don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain. Leave me like they are. 
you know better than anyone, this has been parodied to the nth degree. It's now more cowbell has found its way into the normal lexicon of of American life. Tell us the story of Don't Hear Don't Fear the Reaper. Well, I actually recorded and mixed the whole song. And the cowbell was just one of the instruments that was on it. And there's always a question about who played the cowbell. Because playing a cowbell, it's not as simple as just hitting it with a stick. Mm. You have to move your hands in a way, your hand in a way, so that it doesn't ring too long. Mm. You have to have a decent feel. It's not as simple as it looks. So we tried maybe three or four different people to in the group and producers and stuff with the group to do that cowbell. So finally, we had different versions on the tape, and we picked one that worked in the mix. We picked one that worked the best. And it, it just it added a lot to the song. And mm-hmm. I think that Saturday Night Live, <laughs> the whole spoof was, let's make a big deal out of the cowbell and not the song because the song was a huge hit, you know, and became really, really a pretty famous song. Yeah. And I think that was their, that was their spoof, you know, so that, that's what it was. I certainly did more than the cowbell. (laughs) Well, sure. Yes. I I know you did. I I just, uh, you worked specifically on that song. Right. But I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta just be a mind bender to, suddenly have this song, which was a huge hit, as you mentioned, all, all by itself, before Saturday Night Live ever showed up, that song was a classic. And then they turned it into a cultural sort of phenomenon, in a way, you know? And yeah, yeah, they did. It's got to be weird for you to think, I remember when that song was recorded, you know? Well, I'll tell you, it's a lot of fun. You know, I see myself as, and, and guys that do what I do, as emotional salesmen. Ooh. Because it's our job, it's our job to get the music across to the listeners. You know, movies are interesting because they have a, an image, a video, a, a film, and there's a dialogue with it. But when you're mixing a song, there is no video. Mm-hmm. You got three and a half minutes to. You have to hold the listener to the speakers for three and a half minutes. Yeah. Or whatever the length of the song is, you know. Yeah. And you have to do it so that they see some video in their mind of. Uh, some image of who's singing, even if they don't know what the singer looks like. It evokes some images for them. If you don't do that, you fail. Yeah. But I'm just saying that when a mix is really good, it's animated and it almost feels like it has a video with it. You, yeah. Having a, if we had a video with it at the time, the video becomes half of what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. It becomes a big part of what you're hearing. If mm-hmm. you were to shut it off, it would sound different. Mm-hmm. just the way it is it's a yeah. strange thing but yeah so a lot of the stuff that we did uh evoked an image even though there was no video with it you know got it okay yeah you touched on that earlier sort of that cinematic feel you know where you're yeah it's like it's a movie unspooling or it's very visionary you can see it you can feel it it's almost tactile you know yeah i get it yeah. okay we talked about working with producers, you hooked your wagon there to Jim Steinman for a minute doing Meatloaf's Dead Ringer. That's one of my favorite Meatloaf songs, by the way. Dead Ringer for Love.
I love that song. And then you worked on Jim's solo album, um, Bad for Good, which is a real guilty pleasure of mine. I like that album a lot. What? But I've heard both those guys are are just trippy, both of them. So what's that like? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call them trippy. I would just say they're really creative people. I mean, I, I, they didn't seem any different than anybody else that was creative, except they're unique in their personalities, and they're very creative. And Okay. And uh, there wasn't anything beyond that. They were all, uh, I don't know how else to say it is, there's a lot of criticism out there about creative people. And all I, I worked with creative people since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And they all seem normal to me. Yeah. Right. Uh, they do. And I, I think that if they don't have these unique things in their personality, the music music isn't as as appealing right. i don't know how to explain it sure. anyone i ever met in this business who was successful was unique in a very cool way yeah okay so neither of those two gave you any trouble or you know were difficult no. to work with or temperamental or anything like that no oh that's great no no it's never they just wanted to uh make the best music they could and I was trying to help them do that, and yeah. basically Jimmy was producing with Steinman and with and mm. and Meatloaf, and I was I was engineering. So Jimmy and I were working with both those guys together and somewhat separately. And mm -hmm. I mentioned Todd Rundgren earlier, and I believe he produced Steinman's Bad for Good album. What was it like working with Todd Rundgren? He strikes me as someone who's talk about being creative, someone who's like so full of ideas they're hard to contain sometimes i didn't work with him on the meatloaf stuff but when i did work with him he was just a very creative guy he had his ideas about how the song should be structured and finished and if you wanted to drive to san francisco from los angeles there's many different roads you can take mm. and you end up in san francisco but it's kind of like the journey you're taking on what was that like was mm. it just buildings or was it country or was mm -hmm. it ocean? And so working with Todd and other other producers that are really talented, they get to the final in their own way. And it's about the journey along the way, but they mm -hmm. end up in a really cool place. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I like that analogy a lot. Okay, let's talk about Bob Seger for a minute. I believe you did The Distance, which is a great album. Took a look down a westbound road Right away I made my choice Headed out to my big two-wheeler I was tired of my own voice Took a beat on the northern plains And just rolled that power on Twelve hours out of Mackinac City Stopped in a bar to have a brew Met a girl, we had a few drinks, and I told her what I decided to do. She looked out the window a long, long moment, then she looked into my eyes. She didn't have to say a thing. Every 
and then also Like a Rock. Um, Correct. He, I don't know him at all. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, but he seems like a very normal, down-to-earth kind of guy. What was your experience working with Bob? Well, Bob is uh, another very, very creative writer and performer and artist and overall artist. He comes up with these really cool song ideas. His band and he together make a great sound. He and his manager have been together since they were in college, mm. Punch Andrews, and and they have this great thing. And and Bob is, uh, you know, when you he- when you hear him sing, yeah. and it, you're in the studio and it's coming out of these big speakers, and the band's coming out of this these speakers, it's it takes you over. Mm-hmm. I mean, his feel is so great, you know. Yeah. 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 If you think about all the different songs, one is never like the other. They're all different from one to the next, mm-hmm. and uh, in a, in a cool way. And every time I hear his his stuff that we worked on and other guys worked on, it's always great. He makes a wonderful sound. Yeah, yeah. I I have so much respect for him. I'm curious. You know, we a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, a lot of the music, it uh, it starts to straddle that line of the sound of the late 70s, almost kind of a Laurel Canyon type feel with an early 80s, more synthesized feel. I think of a song, one song that I really like by Bob is American Storm off of the Like a Rock album. And that's a great rockin' rollicky tune that sounds like an example of 80s rock, and whereas the distance may have been more steeped in 70s. I guess what I'm saying is, as the times are changing, how do you, you know, and, and 80s are more synthesized, there's more synthesizers, maybe more sax solos than there would have been before. How are you having to adjust? Or is it an adjustment at all? Is it happening so slowly you're not even aware of it? It's not an adjustment for me. It's a natural progression. Is it? And so it happens slowly. I mean, look, a guy could walk in, one of these artists uh, could walk in with something totally unique sounding that hasn't been on the radio. So it could be all of a sudden you hear something, you go, wow, what the hell is this? This mm-hmm. is like, this is like really cool. I've never heard anything like this before. But generally speaking, the, the progression is a slow progression. And you just you just make your way. It's it's yeah. really about the song. Yeah. 
really about the song. I try to treat each song for what that song is within itself. Mm-hmm. And if it requires instruments that that weren't used on other songs, you have to be true to the song. Right. And however that is, causes whatever that is causes the song to turn out how it turns out. Okay. And and that and and nobody says I'm going to influence music and I'm going to do this to the song or put this instrument in or it just happens naturally, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see here. I I still have so many on my list. I wanted to ask, let's talk about the Eurythmics and Would I Lie to You. Again, I, I mean, I keep inputting my own thoughts on some of these artists you work with. That was a huge transition for them to go from these the Sweet Dreams, Icy Cold synthesizer band that they were to a full-fledged horns and all rock band. Like I was saying kind of about that American Storm song. I don't know. Do they work with you and say, look, we're Shelly, we, we're trying to capture a new sound. We're trying to go a little more R&B. We want to change it up a little bit. We want you to help us. What kind of conversations are happening? Usually, not very much. Usually, okay. if they've heard something I've done and they pick me to work with them, they're looking to get my flavor in, mm. in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so they've determined that they think I can give them something and, uh, that they're looking for. And a lot of times, they don't want to say anything because they don't want me to mm. focus on one thing. They want me to use my own sensibility That about makes a it. lot of sense, yeah. And then, there's, and then there's times where the artist will say, like when Trick Career called me, he said, you know, he said, I, I, I've heard what you did with Petty, and I think I'd like to do an album that's more of a rock album and tougher sounding. And so that would, that would fit into more of what you were saying a minute ago mm-hmm. where, where, where they tell me what they're looking for. Or Suzanne Vega yeah. uh, on, uh, on that album, the producers contacted me and said, listen, the, we made an album with this girl, Suzanne Vega, and it's a little folky sounding for us. Mm-hmm. And we've heard what you've done for other artists. Do you think you could take this and make it in the mix more rock and roll sounding? Mm-hmm. And usually you can't, you know, but I said to him, send me some songs and I'll, let me listen to it and see what I could do. So when they sent me some songs to hear, 
I listened and I said, wow, I, I could make this tougher. I could mm -hmm. make this a little less folky, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so I said, but you guys are going to have to come out to L.A. because you know this artist really well and you're going to have to guide me so that I don't take it too far or not far enough. Right, right. So together, yeah, so together, you know, uh, Steve Adabo and Lenny Kay and myself were able to make this album sound like it was much less folky and turned it into something that yeah these guys were good they knew what they wanted they just weren't sure exactly how to get there but they knew that if they worked with somebody who's like myself who's mm -hmm. making a tougher sound mm -hmm. that maybe i could bring them there and it was it was a really interesting approach you know where they would say hey maybe we can make this more rock and roll yeah and then I was able to do it and we worked together. Because sometimes I would take it a little too far and they would say, sounds a little too heavy-handed to so back it up. <laughs> right. And actually we could, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that uh, Solitude Standing is the name of the Suzanne Vega album that you worked on, and that's a classic. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. Yes, I think you've seen me before If you hear something late at night Some kind of trouble, some kind of fight Just don't ask me what it was Just don't ask me what it was Just don't ask me what it was I think it's cause I'm clumsy I try not to talk too loud That's a good one. Yeah. It really is. Good. Okay, let's talk about you 2 for a minute. My understanding is that you mixed the Under a Blood Red Sky EP, which is, I think, kind of the thing that broke them, you know, that iconic Sunday Bloody Sunday video from that performance. And then also you worked on Rattle and Hum. And I wondered yeah. why it was specifically, Rattle and Hum isn't strictly a live album but there's there are live performances on it were you did you become their live go-to guy why did you work on no primarily tom panunzio hmm. recorded the live stuff i mean okay. i remember going out on the road just for a few days to hear what was going on and what was being recorded but he tom did those live recordings when they got to the finished album and we recorded the studio stuff we were running out of time to make the release date and so a number of different mixes i got all the singles to mix and then i had to show other mixers how i was getting some of the sound so it sounded like one engineer mixed the whole thing you know mm -hmm. and each guy was able to put his personality into it but together we we made this album you know and, mm -hmm. and made the deadline which is always critical when you're near christmas yeah 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 that, um, I mean, I remember so well going to see the movie Rattling Hum in the theater, buying the CD at my local record store. That was a cultural event, you know? 
And, oh, that's awesome. And what? Yes. And then Bono, my understanding is he nominated you for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999, yes, right? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Good man. And I really felt I really felt honored. The problem was that none of us knew that they don't take any recording engineers. So they don't. It's only no, it's only producers. Well, I think it may only be artists. Yeah. Not even producers. I'm not sure. Yeah. There are so many producers. Oh no, no, sorry, sorry. They do take. They sorry. They 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 don't take recording engineers. They don't induct recording engineers, but they do induct producers and artists. Okay. Okay. Um, I I think Tom Dowd is in there. Does Tom fall more in the producer bucket or in the engineer bucket? Because I believe he did both, both too, didn't he? Yes, he did both, and it was a natural thing for him to be able to do both. And I I think when he engineered, he, he was engineering, and when he was producing and engineering, he was doing that, and yeah, he was amazing at it. He's a legend. Did you ever work oh, with yeah. him? No, I was in the room when they were doing Mississippi Queen in, in this Studio C at Record Plant. And uh, it was a small room that had padding all over the place. And here you have this loudest guitar you ever heard. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing this thing, Mississippi Queen, and I'm going, holy cow, how does this guy get this sound, you know? <laughs> right. has, has my utmost respect. Oh, that's wild. Okay, you mentioned it earlier. We should talk about Don Hen Henley's End of the Innocence album. That was another kind of big one. You know, he had followed up building the pool. Oh, yes. And then he follows that up with End of the Innocence. And it's got a ton more hits on it. Uh, Don has a reputation, too, as being another kind of prickly guy. So what's it like working with Don Henley? Well, I, I had a great experience with Don. Good. I don't know what people are talking about. You know, I, I think, I like I said in the beginning, I made a career out of working with people that other other engineers and producers thought they were too tough to work with or difficult. Mm -hmm. I never saw that stuff. I just saw artists who were fighting for their life, trying to do the best work that they yeah. can for the right reasons for themselves. They they want to make the best records they can. And in order to get the song to work, you have to be particular. And, and mm -hmm. they might be called picky, but so what? Mm -hmm. My job is to help them get to the finish line with their ideas, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and throw mine in when they were, when it's, when it's appropriate. Yeah. 
And so I, I didn't experience that. Don is, is very particular about his vocals, mm. and that's probably why people say what they say about being difficult to work with. But we worked hard on his vocals, mm. and uh, he's a great singer, and we would do multiple tracks and, you know, put it together like, like was common uh, at the time. And it was okay. great because he felt that I was trying to help him get the best final vocals that he could get. Yeah. And I think when an artist feels that they have a certain kind of confidence and they don't feel, they feel how about this? They don't feel that there's any restrictions and they feel they can mm -hmm. ask for anything and they should. Yeah. You know, when you, yeah. it's on a simpler term, simpler form, these artists, they just want to hear their music the way they hear it. And if it yeah. doesn't sound good to them, when they hear it their way, then they're willing to try uh, other approaches. But when you go to a store and you, and you buy something, don't you make sure it's it's what you want? Totally. Why would you spend money <laughs> for something that you're looking forward to getting yeah. and you get something that's not quite usable in, or you don't care for? It's, I mean, we're all particular about our stuff and these artists we're discussing, they're particular about what they want. They know when they'll leave something to the producer or the engineer, but they know when they can't do that and they have yeah. to... They have to be part of what's going on at that time, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, You know, one thing I've noticed sometimes when I talk to engineers like you is you're not always in the room necessarily. Sometimes you are, but sometimes you're working, someone's giving you tapes and you're working on them after hours or, you know, mixing everything together. The artists don't aren't always in the room with you. Is that true or no? It, it depends on the mixer. For me... I like having whoever has the best feel for the band, for, mm. for the, whoever has the best feel for the piece of music, I want them in the room with me. Mm. My, some of my friends who are mixers and uh, recording engineers and mixers, they don't want the client there because they feel the client's coming to them for, for what they do and they just want to do it without the client and the input and give them back what they feel it should be and then yeah. take the suggestions from there. So. For me, I like having the artist there or the producer, okay. whoever's, whoever I can work with to, to, to get the, the concepts for the band and get the best product I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I much prefer to not, not be alone on it. Okay. I just thought of a question. Have you, can you recall a time, was, or has there ever been a time where you fought for a particular mix of a song that maybe the artist wasn't, as, wasn't on your wavelength but you fought for it and you won and it's a song that we would know that's a good question you mentioned don't do me like I, that I, earlier with petty maybe it's something I think, like that yes no don't do me like that on uh, uh are you familiar with the raspberries go all the way oh yeah definitely
Well, we tried mixing that. Like in that day, in the, in the 70s, if you took longer than a day to mix a song, actually they expected two songs in a day to be mixed. Mm. But if you took longer than a day, you were like damaged goods, you know? <laughs> we took like a whole day on that one song. And, mm. you know, the producer said, Jimmy Einer said to me, you know, I was counting on this song to be on the album. And they had some trouble playing the song and it's not working well and the, the mix is good, but it, the song's not working. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do here for a single. I thought this was going to be it. This might not even make it on the album. And I mm -hmm. said to him, you know, we, we got this piece of equipment in to try out this, this limiter compressor and it's crazy sounding. And let me take this mix and put it through this thing. Mm -hmm. And it dramatically changed the mix it took mm. the mix and made it stand up and bark and the producer looked at nice. me and said i don't understand this went from like not being on the album to being like a top five song yeah because it for some reason it pushed the inconsistencies to the background and pulled up the things that worked mm. and the finished product was really exciting and unique and so i felt like i could bring something to the table in that way interesting yeah, I wondered if there was, you know, there's got to be moments in your career sprinkled. I'm sure there's many of them where you felt like we nailed this. This is the per trust me on this. This is the perfect mix of this song. And maybe you had to kind of sell it back to people who maybe the guitarist wants his, you know, his guitar a little louder. Or the bassist wants his part a little louder. Or somebody wants their part softer or whatever. But you're like, no, trust me, guys. This is the mix that's going to take us to the promised land, you know? How about this? I do it differently than that. I never try to tell them what they should like. Mm. So what I do is, if they have a version of a song, if they've ended up with a version of a song that they really like, and I'm concerned about it, I might say to them, do you mind if we try one more? Mm. Let me try something here. Mm -hmm. Let me try something here, and let's see how we do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that one extra try after me hearing what they're going for um that one extra thing the artists themselves will say you know i like this i like your version better or they might say i like the choruses better let's intercut them or i like the verses better or i like the whole thing better mm. so a lot of times i was able to bring to the session the ability to say let's try one more mix because i was concerned about what i was hearing even though they were really happy with it you know yeah, yeah. and yeah. you don't want to the last thing i want to do is make the artist insecure about what they're happy with in case my version doesn't work there's no true. fix in that yeah true yeah you gotta you kind of touched on that earlier with the eurythmics is sometimes people hire you to because they want your advice and sometimes they no, don't no not they want, no not because they want my advice they want this Whatever thing I do that they hear that they like, they think that can work for mm, their music. Better, yes. That's a better way of saying it. Yeah, you're right. Good. Interesting. Okay. I just want to throw a couple more at you, if that's okay. I am curious. Yeah. Um, I really like the Cutting Cruise album broadcast.
I've had yeah. Nick Van Eed on here. Uh, I, I that album is great. Do you have any recollections of working with the Cutting Crew on that album? Yeah, I did a couple of songs on that album. I did "Died in Your Arms" and and yeah. one other song with them. And they flew to America to to work on this mix with me. They had a version of that song that was a big hit in England, but the the head of the label called me and and basically said listen we have this hit uh, by cutting crew in england but the mix won't work in the u.s mm. and i said to him you know i said listen you know as well as i do when you get the mix on a hit record you're not getting it again mm -hmm. it happens one time and he said i i know but he said this he said this needs a totally different mix mm. let me send this over to you let me send you the english version and you'll hear you'll hear what it needs. And, and he sent it over to me, and I heard that it was mixed like much drier and mm -hmm. more like an R&B record. Mm -hmm. It was totally different. But the feel was there. That melody and the feel and the words were there, and they captured a great feel. And even when we mixed it, it was tough to get that unique feel back again in the new version, but we did. Yeah. And uh, it's what you, what you hear on the radio. Yeah. Um, like, the, for instance, I think if I remember right, he told me that story or part of it. it this was a few years ago. He uh, mentioned that the original mix of I Die in Your Arms didn't have, for instance, that sort of icy synth throbbing sound at the beginning of the song. And I think that's something that was added to make it even, uh, you know, sound even more powerful. Does that sound right? Yes, I, I didn't add it, but I, John Jansen was one of the producers on okay. that album, and, and I believe that that was his idea was to do that Okay. And uh, on that song. And he wasn't at the mix, but, but we had discussed the song, and when he found out I was going to mix it, yeah, whoever produced, whoever, I shouldn't say whoever produced it, John produced it and uh, with the group, and they did a great job. Mm -hmm. And then my job was to capture what they did and it wasn't so easy, you know. It was. There's never been an easy one. They're always difficult if, if you want to capture what's special about a piece of music, you know. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, uh, thank you, Shelley, for everything. Uh, thank you for talking to me. I again, if you ever, we we could keep. I've got 15 more names here that I was going to throw at you, but maybe we'll have to do a part two sometime. But thank you for all the great work you've done in your life and all the great music you've put out in this world that makes all of our lives better. Thank you, Shelley, for everything. Oh, thank you. I got one more if you want to talk about Ooh, it. Oh, yes, please. Tell us another. Belinda Carlisle, Heaven is a Place on I Earth. I was going to ask you about that one. Okay, nice. So I get this call from the writer of the song, Rick Knowles, and he's a really great producer and, and terrific songwriter. And he said, would you mix this song? I have this song, Heaven is a Place on Earth. And he told me about Belinda and, and, and the song, and and he sent it to me, and I listened to it, and I and I remember calling him and saying, Rick, listen, I'm I'm not trying to be the producer here, but I'm mm -hmm. listening to this as a mixer, mm -hmm. and listening to it as if I mixed this version of this song, and I, I I'm having trouble figuring out how to get from the verse to the chorus. The verse sounds like it's from a different song. The chorus sounds like this huge hit, and the verse is not getting me there. No matter how I envision mixing it, I don't think I can keep it interesting enough. 
I said, it, it, the, the melody, you know, the melody seems a, a little flat for how the chorus is. And I, that may be it, but I'm not sure. So he said, you know, I'm so glad you said that because something bothered me about this song. And I played it for a lot of, a lot of people. And the people I played it for said, wow, it's great. I love it. You got a hit there. It's a great version of this song for her. And mm-hmm. he said, I'm going to redo this and I'm going to get back to you. And I said, Rick, you know, it's a fortune to, to redo a song. I, I don't I don't want to be wrong about this. Mm-hmm. He said, no, 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 no. You, you, you hit it on the head. and I know what I got to do. I said, well, can't you just change the vocal melody? You're one of the writers. Can't you just change the vocal melody and just redo the vocal and the verse? You know, it's really expensive to go in and redo something like that. And I, I didn't want to be responsible if it was a mistake. Because mm-hmm. it's just an educated guess, you know? Yeah. So he sends me this new version, and I called him back. He, I said, wow, you really nailed it. And so it, that, that's the version that you hear on the record. Oh, but, really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so he, Rick kept everything he recorded. He didn't erase anything. So we came to the session with like three or four two-inch tapes, and we hooked them up on all these machines and had different parts. So the first few days of the mix was spent sorting the song out and what's going to work the best uh, w- with him. Mm-hmm. And then we started the mix, and that took a few days. It, it took a number of days to get it to feel like what you hear in the final. It was sure. always there. We just had to figure out how to get it. Yeah. And we stayed with it day after day, and, and, and we we captured it. Amazing. And I'm really proud of that, you know? So. Yeah, amazing. That's a huge hit, too. Um, actually, I thought of two more questions I wanted to ask you. Number one, we try to touch on the business side of things on here very sensitively. As an engineer, do you have a point? Do you get a point? I mean, you're, the music you've worked on has sold in the billions. Can you make a living off of the, you know, the mailbox money from the music you've made in your life? Let's put it this way. I don't have a royalty. I don't have points on everything I worked on, but I have points on a number of things I worked on and it, it still pays well to this day. You nice. know. And... Nice. That's what I wanted to know. Okay. Very cool. I'm curious what, you miss most from the glory days of the music industry. It's, uh, you know, it's not what it was. We all know this. And 
you were in the heart of it all, making some of the best music anyone's ever made at that time. What do you miss most? Do you miss per diems? Do you miss having a studio to go to? Do you miss the money? Do you miss the touring? What do you miss? I miss the band playing together all at the same time mm. and then doing overdubs to that. I, I think in the day, because there were no boxes to fix pitch and stuff like that, bands and our singers had to perform and and sing in tune and play in time and and they had to they could they had to perform their own music which they could do mm-hmm. and now uh, uh, a lot of it is done in pieces uh for whatever the reason is it's a different sound and it certainly makes some good music but i liked it when we'd work and do as much as we could in the recording and then of course you have to overdub to do the parts yeah, and then mix it. There's something about that stuff that's really attractive. Yeah, and I, I like working in pieces too. But if you would ask me what left me with the best feeling when I was done, mm-hmm. I would say when when a group would record all at the same time, like I say, and and then of course do overdubs as needed. Yeah, but uh, there's there's something to say for that. Yeah, that's pretty much what I miss, and the camaraderie of working with uh, multiple people in, in, in the group all at the same time. And there's a number of things. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I bet. I bet. Well, uh, thanks again, Shelly. This was, this was amazing. Thank you so much for talking with me. There you have it. Shelly Yakis. The guy's a legend. We put the link to his website in the show description right here. So give it a tap. If you want to go in and check out his website, you can see the full discography there of everything that he's worked on. So much. So much stuff. We could do hours and hours of this. By the way, uh, funny little bit of trivia. In the conversation in here, you hear me mention a couple of times that I wish I could talk to Danny Korchmar because I, I, I love his work. Well, Shelly and I talked about a month and a half ago. And since then, Danny and I have connected up. And so Cooch is going to be next week's guest. Uh, it worked. It worked out. So a couple of these things that came up with Shelly are going to get further fleshed out with Danny, as well as a million other things. It's a great, great conversation. And we have a special bonus episode coming out this Friday that relates to Danny Cooch, I should say. We call him Cooch. And his uh, latest project. And there's a lot more information where that came from. So listen up this Friday for more on that. Now, I want to close it out with one of my favorite songs. I know I say that a lot, guys, but this is one of those songs, the mood on here, it creates such a mood. I often think sometimes if my insides had a soundtrack, it would sound like this song. This is a song called Alone in the Dark by a band called The Devlins. From 1993, Shelley engineered this song. I uh, I wish I liked more of the Devlins than I do, but when they are good, they are very good. And this song, oh, oh, I have been known to play this song on a loop for hours and hours and hours because it hits me hard. I love this song. Anyway, huge thanks to Jan the Man Makiewicz. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Thanks for being my partner in all of this. Guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Again, next Tuesday is Danny Korchmar. This week, this Friday, we have a bonus coming out that you're going to want to check out as well. Okay? Thanks, everyone. We love you.
Yeah.